Jill, testimony? By dining class, cool. Put it, on, put it on the mic. Put it on the mic. <laughs> <clears throat> I just wanted to talk about, a little bit about the identity classroom first. People can come out for that. Um, I got to the first couple of meetings actually here. They also posted links online. So if you don't feel like you missed something, you can catch up online. Um, but I do, I think it's better when they actually meet. So I would encourage people to come out for that. And if they're restarting it, they're going to in the fall. Um, so some of the things that, that I picked up from that was that, that the book, the Bible is not really not a book of rules and revelations. Sorry. The Bible is really not a book of rules and regulations. This is why I read it um, But it really teaches about relationship with God. Amen. Who he is and who we are in him. Um, we are Amen. encouraged to pursue him. This passage really encouraged me to pursue him rather than to pursue the encounter. Which I thought was an interesting concept that, that we learned. We were taught, I, I've heard teachings by Josh and by Alan and by Tim, and that seems interesting to have different, different perspectives and different teachers, so you get to learn from different people. Um, <clears throat> we spent time learning about how we were wired, which I also found very helpful. Like, I didn't know I was an introvert. <laughs> um, but, and there, was, there were practical tests that we took like to kind of tell us who we are and, and how we're wired. There was, um, there was a great test about prophetic gifting that I thought was really interesting too. So every, like, everybody kind of shares together. So there's practical opportunities to practice what we learn. And so I didn't feel intimidated by that because we're not, I'm not sent out in the world alone like I was. So there's a whole different um, experience right. in that. I get, Really encourage, there's a lot of encouragement, and also you find, um, you'll hear testimonies from people that, that have taken the course they've gone out with what they've learned and get to practice it out on the street, so that's like kind of cool too. So, one of the biggest things I, that I got out of the beginning of the course was this question of what are we saved to as opposed to what are we saved from? And that has become a matter of meditation yeah. for me that we're awesome. saved to um, this amazing family. Amen. <clears throat> awesome. So great. You know, we really started uh, this group out of the understanding that so many of us come uh, into salvation knowing that we're saved from something, but we don't always get wired in the understanding of what we're getting saved into. Uh, so you get saved now, read, you know, the book of John, you know, and there we go. So <clears throat> what we've been doing here is just going to, like, what does it really mean to now be saved, not saved from eternal damnation only, but saved into your inheritance, saved into being a son or daughter of, of God. So that is where, uh, where, where the, the context, really, right, of, of where that group came out of. So it's been really awesome. If you, uh, if you just lower my mic down again, um, I'm sure it had to go up for Jill. I'm sorry, I didn't even know that there was a testimony going today. I'm sure Josh said it. So if you were looking at me like that, I was just like, there was something going on, but I was like, why is Jill sitting in the second row, first of all? And why she keeps looking at me? Do I have something on my face? I mean, it is allergy season, but I don't think there was anything. To... <clears throat> Praise the Lord. You're allowed to laugh in the, in, in the Lord's house, right? Come on. Uh, I remember watching a movie. What was the movie? Um, Joe is like the, the king of all Christian movies. 
So what about Paul? Paul, Paul the Apostle. And there is a scene, yeah, there is a scene with Paul and Luke, and they're sitting there in a prison, and Paul is like ripping into Peter, like the Apostle. He's like, can you remember when we were sleeping, some blah, 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 and Peter was up all night snoring, and it was like, I thought it was the coolest thing with, by the directors. You're like, God, he, like, these people were like real people, you know? You know? Um, we have to remember that. They snored, they had belly aches, you know, and things like that. So, um, what's that? Yeah, you know, it's all that stuff. And, you know, we forget that. You know, sometimes we get a little too serious in the house of the Lord. All right, well, let's get a little bit more serious. First Samuel, we're going to start here. First <clears throat> uh, Samuel chapter 18. Apologize if I cough a little bit. Something, something's going on outside. So we were in a uh, sermon series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, and there will be a, another sermon series, I believe, coming up in, the, in more of the summer on the life and times of Jesus, life and times of Yeshua, which should be pretty cool. Uh, but I didn't feel led to really start it yet. And so there has been some talk about the importance of being emotionally healthy. Uh, Josh and I have been talking about this concept, how we really need to be emotionally healthy in, in the Lord's house. It's cool to be saved, but you need to be different. It's cool to raise your hand and praise the Lord here, but when you go back home, you should be different, right? You should be transformed. Uh, you should be emotionally healthy. So last week, that's where uh, really the context of the anxiety and what we were teaching on. So this week, we're going to be teaching on something connected to emotional health. Uh, and then next week, Father's Day, yeah, we're really going to attempt, well, it will happen through the Spirit of the Lord, uh, discuss the emotional health of, of males, because men like to wear masks, and those masks can be tr transferred to the next generation of men. And uh, it's been going on since the fall of Adam, and we need to get rid of that. Amen. So next week should be cool. So this week, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6, we, shall, we will begin. Now, it had happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistines that the women had come out of all their cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. <clears throat> so the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me... They have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul, I, David, from that day forward. So what we have here is king, the first king of Israel. King Saul is getting jealous. Jealous of King David. Because the people, particularly the women, are saying, Oh, Saul has killed thousands, but David has killed ten thousands. And what happens here is Saul begins to take on a spirit of offense, uh, which is going to ruin him. Okay? So, before we get into the ruining of him, let's, uh, let's kind of build a, a context for what's going on. So, <clears throat> in this congregation, we're really blessed because we have so many uh, different uh, groups of people, different demographics, different ethnicities, different races, uh, and different generations. So we're going to go on a little bit of a journey of generations for today. <clears throat> the millennials. 
Uh, if you're born between 1980 and 2000, and if, you, if you're okay showing your age, raise your hand. All right, I'm September 1980. So everyone look at us millennials. We're awesome even though everyone makes fun of us. And I mean everyone. I mean everyone makes fun of us. Oh, the entitled generation, the ones that are addicted to their cell phones and Facebook and you know they can't even have a conversation. Come on, you've all heard that, right? Right? So here we are. Let's raise our hands again. Here we are, the millennials. Here we are. Okay, the future. Future of the world. Whether you like it or not, we are the future of that. Okay? So millennials, born 1980, 2000. All right, so... Uh, we have a good portion of uh, that group of people that are here. Uh, not as many as I thought. I thought we would have more, but it's all good. They're coming. Once they get off of Facebook, they'll be here. <laughs> all right. Whoa. Generation X, 1965, I want you to raise your hand. Where are you? Whoa, that looks like the largest, potentially the largest population here, maybe. All right, so I don't know what to say about Generation X uh, outside of the Breakfast Club. Yeah, right? Uh, what are we to say about, about them? Um, you know, each group has uh, wonderful uh, positives and also some negatives about them. Millennials are known to be like innovative and, and tech savvy and collaborative and multicultural and all that good stuff. Uh, and uh, Generation X... Um, you know, they come into a time period, essentially they are the first ones born of the earliest baby boomers. Uh, and they're, uh, they have been uh, real like go-getters. Uh, they're born and uh, they're going to come of age during like the ripeness of the 80s when there's a lot of Wall Street money being had. Ferris, Bueller, Bueller, yeah. Bueller, right? Uh, at the height of the Wall Street boom. Um, they have a tendency to have been uh, um, raised up in that. And some of them, of the lost, or maybe, you know, the saved, may in fact uh, get caught up in the, um, in the realm of, uh, well, money, money, money. Right? Uh, just like millennials will get caught up in, uh, some will say, image. What's my image like? How am I presenting myself on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat? Right? Each generation has their good and their bad. But yeah, the Generation X, the real uh, go-getters uh, is what, they, what they've been. Uh, the one before that, I understand if you don't want to raise your hand, you don't, to, you don't have to raise your hand, but it's okay. By process of elimination, we know. <laughs> the baby boomer. Yeah. Oh, there you guys are. 1946 to 1964, there you guys are. All right, raise, raise them up, raise them up. Yeah. yeah. Cool people, real cool people. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, 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 there's a lot we can say, and, uh, you know, and, you know, I'm going to watch myself here, but you can ask uh, Jonathan, Sam, Jonathan what he thinks about it um, when we talk about the baby boomers in class. Right? No, it's, it's all. Like, there's positives and there's negatives. So, uh, born 1946 and 1964, uh, there is so much to say about the baby boomers. We don't even know where to begin about you guys. Um, there's so much. There's so much. Um, you know, everything from, everything from uh, the coolness of rock and roll to, you know, giving $21 trillion worth of debt to the United States. Uh, <laughs> uh, the baby boomers are uh, born uh, right after World War II. It's going to be the uh, largest uh, increase of population uh, in the United States. A very, very powerful force culturally, socially, economically. Uh, you know, a little less, I guess, of the rock and roll uh, early days, but a little bit more of like the 1960s, 70s, classic rock kind of stuff. Um, you know... My parents are baby boomers, you know, uh, completely, utterly shaped 
the nation, the amount of history, I mean, both good and not so good, that happened during their time period is unbelievable. I mean, you think about all of the changes that took place. Man on the Moon, um, you know, uh, Woodstock, Vietnam, uh, the 1950s, uh, suburbia. Uh, it's amazing the amount of things that you guys have seen. You know, some of you saw the actual creation of the Cold War and the Soviet Union and the ending of it, right? Uh, it's an amazing amount of things uh, that you guys witnessed. Uh, the next is the silent generation. Um, I'm not sure if anyone wants to raise their hand, but you can if you like. I'd like to give you the opportunity. Yeah! All right. You see, you see, they were a little bit more silent. You see that? Born in 1925 and 1945, uh, you know, I gotta be honest. If uh, if 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 I could pick, like, really kind of time to be a kid, that's probably the time, right? Um, you you escape World War II, which is great. You don't see the Great Depression. You're around for the glories of the 1950s in terms of money and, and goodness and wholesome and all that kind of stuff. Uh, they're known as the silent generation in a kind of an interesting way. Uh, people say they're known as the silent generation because they're brought up in, a, in an era where kids are to be seen and not heard, right? Um, they were brought up, they come of age during uh, what's called like the, the McCarthyism. You history buffs out there know what I'm talking about. Like you have to be careful what you say because, you know, someone may think that you are this or that. Uh, they come of age in the, the conformity of the 1950s where everyone, you know, don't rock the boat, play your part, know your role. Be honest, if you take a silent person from the silent generation and you mix them with a millennial, usually doesn't go so well. <laughs> right? They're quite different. So the silent generation, um, they have a tendency to be uh, a little bit more traditional. They're growing up in a very traditional time of the 1950s. Mom stays at home, dad goes out to work, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Um, so we are sorry, silent generation, for us millennials and our interaction. Because <laughs> we're going to be, you know, people probably different. But we're in the house of the Lord, so we all get to come together, right? <clears throat> now, i got to be honest, the coolest. Just going to throw that out there. The coolest. The greatest generation. 1920, 19, uh, 19, 1910, and 1924. Uh, we'll probably go into as deep as 1927 with that. Anyone here like to raise their hand for that? Well, there, there are a couple, uh, I believe, in the congregation. Um, I, uh, I have a quasi-obsession with, with the greatest generation, um, partially because of being a, a history guy, partially because my grandparents are... Uh, part of the greatest generation, so there's a little bit of like that connection. Like you think about your grandparents, you know. Um, but it, you know, there's a bit of an obsession, if you will. Um, you know, I just look back on the greatest generation. I'm like, man, one, they're called the greatest. It's just amazing. Uh, two, uh, you know, I take a look at their culture, things that they grew up with, uh, swing music, jazz, blues. Like the men wore suits and wingtips. The ladies wore dresses and heels. If there's like there's a certain kind of panache, 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 right? And glamour to it in the movies. You don't know, maybe that's just me looking at it. Uh, the people of that time, holy cow. You know, Lou Gehrig, the Iron Horse. Jumpin' Joe DiMaggio, Jackie Robinson, Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald. Who else do I have on here? Walt Disney? John Steinbeck, uh, some will say like the greatest American novelist, potentially. 
Dylan Thomas, some will say the greatest 20th century poet. Uh, Billy Graham. I mean, there's just, there's so many like people that have come out of that time period. And then of course, there's a guy uh, who you may not have heard of and his name is Audie Murphy. Audie Murphy. Audie Murphy, uh, part of the greatest generation, was 16 years of age when he enlisted uh, in uh, the army. He did it by lying. Um, he, in 1941, he's like, I want to serve my nation. I'm going to go. I'm going to lie. Because you can't until, unless you're 18. So he lies about his age. He's five foot five and weighs 110 pounds. And yet he's the most decorated U.S. combat soldier of World War II. In 1944, he encountered a German machine gun crew who pretended they were surrendering, then shot his, they shot his best friend. Uh, Murphy killed everyone in the gun nest then used their own weaponry to kill everybody in a 100-yard radius, including two more machine gun nests and a bunch of snipers. In another battle, he jumped into a burning M10 tank destroyer and used it to annihilate every enemy in sight, then leaped clear before it exploded, all while he had malaria. Uh, I'm not trying to uh, glorify violence in here, uh, but I'm like, man, when I was 16, I was having a hard time like driving a stick shift. You know? So, uh, a couple things here. Uh, <clears throat> what made the, the greatest generation great? And, and it is going to be connected to, to biblical principles, what we see in Saul versus David. Uh, they experienced a lot. Uh, they went through uh, the Dust Bowl where, you know, uh, there is so much dust and so much uh, just destruction of our uh, agriculture um, that dust storms emerge uh, that are going to be felt even in the Atlantic Ocean. The dust will be falling on top, on, on top of ships. Uh, stock market crash in 1929 uh, that occurs and leaves the country in uh, a really bad place. And a Great Depression where 25% uh, of the nation is unemployed. And there is no government help at that time. right? There, you, you don't work, you don't, you don't get anything. There's no food stamps, there's no unemployment, nothing. You don't get it. And then, of course, World War II. Uh, and so here they are, right? Uh, this generation of people... They're going to go out and um, they are um, going to defeat uh, the Nazis, uh, the tyrants, people who are putting 12 million people into ovens, right? I mean, Audi is going to be one of the guys that's going to say, no, you're not doing that. Uh, defeating the Japanese. Um, amazing, amazing stuff. They come back to the United States and actually that generation uh, is going to create in the 1950s the greatest economic boom in world history. Not American history, in world history. The greatest development of monetary wealth the world has ever seen. And of course, it's by the grace of the Lord. But, you know, I'm looking at this stuff and I'm pondering about this stuff. And this is, you know, how the Lord kind of works with me. And I was like, well, why did some historian by the name of Tom Brokaw, why did he call them the greatest generation? Now, obviously, they went through amazing, amazing things. Uh, but what I felt was so powerful here is that this is what really occurred. Um, they did not allow their experience to define them. Unemployed, I don't have a job, it's difficult, man, the nation is in a depression, we were just attacked in Pearl Harbor, I gotta go fight. They did not allow their experience to define them, they actually overcame major, major obstacles. So the power of this group, I, I think, is that not that they just like won World War II, is that they won World War II out of coming out of a Great Depression. 
Like they were, they were up against so much and they're like, we're not going to allow that to define us. We're going to overcome these things. And I think that's very powerful. Uh, I believe that they did this uh, because uh, they were not easily offended. Uh, they did not cower from offense. Uh, the enemies of the state, uh, the Nazis, the Japanese, the economic hardships that were underway, uh, at least looking back historically, I see them as a people who are not offended easily. Uh, they overcame and defined themselves as something other uh, than a victim. And the reason why I, I'm bringing this up, because I, I really do believe something has happened recently, next 10 years, last 10 years, maybe 20 years, maybe essentially with the birth of the millennia, I don't know. All across planet Earth, I, I feel when looking at it, uh, is that the, the world has a, uh, adopted a spirit of victimization. Everyone is a, a victim. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. These people hate me. These people don't like me. In fact, you see in many regards in, uh, in, in uh, academia and even in churches, people will go to the rally cry of even politically, and not just politically, but like in a militaristic way, will go to the rally cry to those who appear to be the underdog. Even if the underdog is flat out wrong. Even if the underdog are terrorists. Oh, they're the underdog. They're the victim. Um, and it's a very dangerous thing. And I believe that uh, it has happened. Um, I feel that we, are, we, we have begun to live in a culture uh, that plays the victim. As I said, it's not my fault. You have done this to me. How could you say that? You voted for this person, then therefore you are a bigot, a racist, a this, that, and everything. There's so much that's been going on, uh, and it's highly, highly destructive. And we have to really guard ourselves uh, that we don't play into that, that we don't get pulled into this mentality. Yeah. All right, uh, what we have here is uh, Matthew uh, chapter 24, um, verse 3. It says, Now as he sat, this is the Lord sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Matthew 24 is the famous chapter where the Lord is going to tell the timetable of when he is going to return. Okay? The disciples go up to him, can you tell us what will be the signs? And the rest of the chapter, he gives um, many, many signs of things that are going to occur. And... Um, some of your versions will say different things, but I really, just really like how the King James and the New King James translates it. Uh, and th that begins in uh, 12. So, I'm sorry, in 10. It says, the, at the end of time, what will be one of the signs? That and many will be offended. It's actually a sign of the coming of the Lord, the speeding up of the end of the age. Some of your translations say, some will fall away, some will no longer be saved. But I really like this translation of the Greek. Many will be offended. In the body, and I think also outside of the body, but both, absolutely. They will betray one another and will hate one another. And many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And it goes on, goes on to be other signs. And so, I was just like, holy cow, like... This victimization of offense 
In many regards, it's been prophesied that it is going to be one of the signs of the end of times. People being so easily, easily offended. I'm not sure, just a raise of hands, because you know, this is what I have experienced. Has anyone here experienced in the world or in the, in, in the congregation that you've been a part of, this one or another, people very easily offended? Like you just go up against their opinion and they're like, no, you're wrong because you're saying I'm wrong. And they only listen to logic. Not only do they not listen to logic, there's so much emotion that comes up out of justification for their opinion that you can't even speak to them. Many will be offended in those days. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, in Acts chapter 24, verse 16, we see uh, Paul saying something very powerful. He says, uh, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. So this is uh, Acts 24, verse 16. We see Paul the Apostle saying, I'm going out of my way to make sure that I'm not an offense to man and I'm not an offense to God. This, I don't think this is Paul saying, like, don't tell people the truth and don't like, walk around things so people don't, don't, don't feel convicted or, or get into discussion with people. It's just my actions, I want to make sure that I'm not offending people. I'm not doing things in a bad spirit. I think that's very, very different than the level of offense that people may be walking with today. And so I want to use this to say, all right, so Paul the Apostle is saying, I, I don't want to be, have offense and walk in a spirit of offense towards God or towards other men, period. I think if he was writing this today in the 21st century, he probably would change it a little bit. And he would say, I don't want to walk in a, in a spirit of offense towards God, towards man or myself. And what I mean by that is, we have to be very secure and uh, mindful not to adopt a spirit of offense. Fine, you don't want to offend other people. I get it, but sometimes offense comes. You don't want to offend God. Absolutely, never. But turning it on the inside, you do not want to be a person who is easily offended. And I'm talking like this, and maybe it's because I'm a high school teacher, and I see it every day. I see it every day. You talk about something that is controversial, you, know, you put up a typical like, T-chart, pros and cons to the argument. You're not even, as a teacher, I mean, I'm not even really allowed to give my own opinion. I'm just putting it out there as a, as a positive, negative, like a T-chart. And I have kids be like, I'm offended that you said that. I'm like, you're allowed to be offended. This is just like a perspective by another person. And maybe that's why I'm, I'm, I'm sensitive about it. Because people are calling the millennial generation the snowflake generation. You probably have all heard it. The snowflake, someone who is self-obsessed, fragile, easily offended or unable to deal with opposing views. Like these are people are actually talking about the spirit of culture in America now. A snowflake, every, every snowflake is an individual, very special, no one is the same. And, you're so unique and you're so special and because you're so unique and you're so special, you know, your feelings are to be protected and your feelings are going to rule your views. That's my experience in high school. That's my experience when dealing with millennials in the church and also outside of the church at times. Not necessarily this one, but you guys know what I'm talking about. So, 
I'm offended that you're offended. Oh, that's funny. All right? All right, so, look, it, it's really important because it's very easy to allow your emotions to govern uh, who you are, and I do believe that our culture is really promoting this now. And it's not just our culture that's promoting it, but it's also our technology that is promoting it, right? Uh, the amount of people who just throw things up on, on, on social media to justify and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, if you say that you disagree, you're now going to get like 3,000 comments about how you're a horrible person. You know, the understanding of having individual thought is, is largely leaving. Yeah. Yeah. It is an offense, and you know the important thing is to walk out in love, right? Uh, and then there shouldn't be offense. Um, <clears throat> so what is what does this real like snowflake mentality really look like? Okay, so let's try to make some more sense out of this, right? Uh, essentially, it's a person that walks with a sense of entitlement. I deserve things because I am so special. Um, you know, people write about like, you know, it's the participation trophy generation, whatever the case may be. I don't want to necessarily just make fun of us millennials. It could be anyone. And I, you know, it can be, and it is in many people. No matter what generation it is. You walk in a sense of entitlement. I'm entitled to this. I'm entitled to my opinion. I'm entitled, I'm entitled, entitled. Uh, and then secondly, of course, pride. Our pride develops into it's not my fault. It is something that someone has done to me. I am this way because my childhood was bad. That may be true. It may absolutely be true. But with Jesus, we get to overcome those things. Yes. Right? Uh, but it's a notion of you're walking in pride, in a prideful manner, where nothing is your fault. No one can question what you believe. Um, and everyone else is wrong. You know? It could be, you know, try to make some things like in, in a congregation, it could be, you know, the pastor didn't say hello to me. That's his fault. He's so cold, he doesn't come by and say hello to me. Okay, well, all right, that's, so it's my fault. I'm not saying that's ever happened, or maybe it has, but I haven't heard of it. But like walking in that, it's like, well, instead of it being someone else's fault, maybe, you know, someone at work or someone at church, like, you go and say hello to them. Like, can, can, you, can, you, can you get yourself out of your own mentality, right? right? Be the solution to a problem, right? Uh, next, uh, an element of unfairness. You know, um, the pride develops into the spirit of unfairness. Um, you uh, treat me unfairly. You don't value me. Uh, I'm supposed to be promoted in the corporation quicker than I really am. How come I haven't moved up the rank uh, in, in the, the job? Um, how come uh, the people in church don't really value my giftings or my talents? And a lot of times what people happen here is people will actually leave corporations that they work for and also congregations that they're a part of because they feel that they are, they are not valued. And you know, sometimes that may actually in fact be, right? Uh, but you have to be very careful. Uh, next one is the element of respect. Uh, it is people who walk around demanding respect. Very strong personality types. They're like, I am to be respected. How dare you act this way towards me? Um, you know, the world says that we are to demand respect. The Bible says we are to walk out in the love of the Lord with all humility. Now, why do people do this? 
Because I believe they have adopted a spirit of victimization, a martyr complex, a victim complex upon themselves. And it can be very, very fruitful for them. Because when you walk out like this, you have a sense of entitlement, pride, on all of this. You're going to receive attention, right? You're going to receive attention. Look at Johnny over there, or Timmy, or Sally. Uh, they're pouting right now. It's an adult pout. Entitlement essentially is an adult pouting. And so now everyone's going to come over. Oh, are you okay? Oh, yeah, that person, he, he really shouldn't have treated you that way. You're so right. How could he? Just think about a moment. How many of your conversations are revolved around that concept? Um, other people will feel sorry for you if you walk out this way. So you get that attention. Um, one of the most powerful things is uh, when you walk out this way, uh, people will be less likely to give you criticism. Like if you're carrying on like that, people will be less likely to come to you and say, hey brother, hey sister, you know, you're probably, you, I, th I think something's off here and, you know, uh, why don't we like, you know, figure out what's really at the root and the cause of all this. If you're emotional and you're, 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 you're walking out in this very offensive kind of thing, people are not going to be able to come to you because you're not ready for it. Um, the last part of this is essentially of why do people do this is because it creates drama. And if you're creating enough drama in your life, and if you're surrounding yourself with someone who has a whole bunch of drama, uh, I would take a pause and say, you know what, do they have this spirit of offense on them? Spirit of victimization. Because what does drama do? Uh, drama distracts everyone and everything from the true issue. Distraction, 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 distraction. What about the true issue? So the spirit of offense is essentially an acid that is poured uh, into a container and begins to deteriorate, deteriorate and eat from within. The acid is the, the offense. And so, fine, drama overshadows the real issue. What is the real issue? The real issue is the spirit of offense, either in a believer or surely in the world, is because people do not have their identity right. That's what it comes down to. You do not, you may not have your identity right. And so what happens here is, this happens in society. And it also happens with, amongst the believer. Um, and so where did this uh, come from? Essentially, something has happened over the years. And I think it really happened in, beginning with the millennials. And there's been a movement uh, away from uh, the individual to the group. What has happened, and I, I think we have a generation that is looming, that walks quite more easily with the spirit of offense. Um, because they get their validation and their value through the group. Uh, we in our society have become in a place where, and also in the church, where we have lost the fact that you are first an individual and then you are a part of a group. And so what happens here is this. Over the years, people have forgotten in our society 
uh, that Thomas Jefferson wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain, not rights, but certain individual rights. By and large, on planet Earth, especially in, 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 in America, and in the congregation, in the, in the, the ecclesia, the, the, the congregation, the church of the Lord, the body of Messiah, you are first an individual. Too often what happens here is we can define ourselves by the group that we're a part of. Opposed to identifying yourself as an individual before the Lord. Before you're part of a body, you're, you're, you're first an individual standing before the Lord. And so in society what happens here is we forget that our right to speech, our right to our own thoughts, the right to our own values and our judgments... Uh, we forget that we get to have them as an individual, and we forget that the, not the government gives us that right, but that our creator gives us that right. And so what happens here is now people begin to think that their rights and who they are and their identity is defined by the group that they belong to. And so now if you offend or say something against someone's grouping, what are they processing here? You're talking about me specifically. I get my identity based upon the group that I'm a part of. And now you're criticizing that group. If you're criticizing that group, you're now really criticizing me. So people's value has become found in a group and not as an individual. And then therefore your group gives you the value. This is one of the, I know this is like a little, maybe a little more like a little message topic. I'm telling you, this is at the root of so much in our society. People have lost the understanding that they are an individual before their creator, and now they are a white America before their creator, a Hispanic America before their creator, a black community, a gay community, a straight community. Everyone has gotten into this group dynamic and this group identity. You're part of a group first. No, you are an individual, an individual human being with individual rights, with individual desires, with individual values. And you're not a part of just a group. You're part of you and your father. Once you get that right, now you can be a part of a group, but you're not going to identify with your political party. You're not going to identify with your race and your ethnicity. and You're not going to identify with that stuff anymore. You're not going to identify yourself as solely a recovering alcoholic anymore. Because your value of who you are does not come from your grouping. It can only come from the Lord himself as an individual. And something happened. I'm telling you, World War II generation, people were like, all right, whether I'm black or white, male or female, Catholic or Protestant, Jew or Gentile, I have a mission to complete. I am an individual that's being called upon to serve my country, to defeat the evils of this world. There is no time for grouping. There's no time for which group are you part of and getting your feelings hurt. It was, you are an individual, you have a sense of responsibility and importance to defeat evil incarnate on planet Earth. But we're living the good times now. We're living the good times now, so now people are beginning to gravitate towards a grouping. And groups are not necessarily bad, but you cannot get your value from that group and the way that they think. Uh, the spirit of offense breaks off a person when they view themselves as an individual before the Heavenly Father. And this has to happen in 
amongst the believers. You have to get your value between you and your father and not the group you're a part of. My church is really awesome. That's great. But you're awesome. Hey, I get my value because when I come to church, I'm on the worship team. That's great. But that's not why you're coming to the Lord's house. Right? We have to identify ourselves first with the Lord. And we've adopted in society this kind of what we call groupthink. Right? It's the collective we. For you readers out there, right? Four legs are good, two legs are bad. Right? Groupthink. Everyone's together. You can't have your own sense of your own individual. And you define yourselves by the grouping that you're supposed to be a part of. And it's very, very powerful with social media today. We can have the uh, worship band come on down. Worship team come down, please. They're very powerful today with, uh, with, with Facebook and with all these groupings. People feel compelled to be a part of the group. Don't be compelled to be a part of, the, of a group. You were saved for you. We have to break this off uh, in, 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 in many regards. Break off the spirit of victimization. You're not a victim. You're not. Um... I am not just part of a group. I am an individual who was made. If you really want to break this stuff off, the sense of entitlement and pride and being so easily offended, to get into an emotionally healthy state, you, we have to change things. You are not just a part of a group. You are an individual before the Lord. And I think a lot of times when we repent and we get saved, we get pulled into that kind of church world so much that we begin to identify ourselves as that corporate body. And something is missed. So, I am an individual who was made because he wanted me. I know he wanted you, but he wanted me too. I am an individual who is loved. I am an individual that has special giftings. I am an individual that has a specific role. And all of us, you need to adopt that type of thinking. You are special, yes. You have been saved because he wanted you. And he wanted all of us. But you are an individual with him. Your validation of your self-esteem will come from that moment uh, when we begin to recognize this in the Lord's love. And so as it was said by someone, uh, fences will come. Luke chapter 17 verse 1 says that offenses will come. But when they come, I'm not going to be offended now. And I'm not going to be offended because you can say what you want about my grouping. And whatever group I'm a part of. But I do not get my identity from that group. I may be a part of that group, but my identity comes from Him. This is, this is what believers have to adopt big time. And it's also what the lost needs to see. Because there's so much group politics that exists, it's unbelievable. Um, we have to reestablish the understanding of the word I. Not in an egomaniacal way, but in a healthy way. You have a sense of I. You are a person that is fearfully and wonderfully made before the Lord. We have to re-understand again. In this very collectivist type of society, 
that you are an individual before the Lord. So powerful. When you understand I again. So when the spirit of offense comes and victimization comes, you can really understand that you are not a victim of your past or what has been done to you. But I am one who has connection with the Father. I am the righteousness of God, the scriptures say. The scriptures say, I am the righteousness of God. The scriptures say, I am beloved. I am saved by grace. I am more than a conqueror. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I have a purpose. Maybe I don't sing as well as Mario, but I have my purpose before the Lord. And you have to reestablish and re-understand your I, your purpose. Not just the purpose of this congregation, but yours. Your specific purpose. I have a meaning to my life. To have fellowship with the Lord. To proclaim the gospel. To pull back the darkness of this world. Amen? I need something here, guys. That's right. My identity, right? Our identity does not come from the grouping. It comes from the Lord. Amen? So, the, all this concept to try to bring it back home can be seen, as we close up today, uh, through the stories of Saul and David. Right? I began with, and the women said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And then Saul was very angry. Very angry, so angry that he's going to send forth for his son-in-law, David, to be killed. He is so taken over with the spirit of offense. How dare all the people of Israel start to declare the goodness of David, who's not even a king. But I, the king, they're kind of demeaning a little bit. How dare they, I'm going after David, I'm going to try to kill him. That's a spirit of offense right there, wouldn't you say? And so what has happened here is this. Saul is offended because he's getting his identity from the group. What does Israel say about me? The people that I serve, what do they say about me? I'm their king, right? So he's getting his identity from the accolades of the people. And then once someone else comes around that's a little better, he starts to take on the spirit of offense. And that's a mess. You really see the conclusion of that little story. Uh, we take a look at 1 Samuel 31. Oh, that's 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel 31, verse 4 to 6. Oh. The battle became fierce in verse 3 against Saul. The archers hit him and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled. And the Philistines came and, and dwelled in them. 
Uh, what we have here is this. Saul takes on the spirit of offense. If you take on the spirit of the sense, the end of the story is going to be this. You're going to die by your own hand. Your own hand of offense is going to slowly bring the death of you. Saul is so offended that he has to justify who he is before Israel by going out to war. And he goes out to war with his sword and he's going to prove that he's better and greater than David ever was. And in that attempt, he dies by his own vehicle. He dies by his own sword. And the really sad thing is he takes others with him. He takes his sons with him and he takes his armor bearer with him. The spirit of offense, you, your soul will slowly die by it when you try to justify yourself and you'll take others with you. But there's another way. The other way is uh, King David. King David was to be um, Saul's armor bearer, it says early on, before all of this takes place. Saul says, you know, when you go out to fight Goliath, just put on these things, put on these swords, put on this shield, put on this helmet, put on the, put on, the, take, take it all on, right? This is what you're supposed to do when you go to battle. Uh, David's response is, I, I can't even move in this thing, man. How on earth am I going to fight Goliath if I'm putting on all of your armor? When I'm putting on your stuff? So he takes it off. And he just goes out with a slingshot. And he's victorious. One, one armor bearer dies with Saul. The other armor bearer survives. And becomes a great man in the annals of the history of Israel. The armor bearer of Saul, at the end of the story, is one who kept on all the things of Saul. All the things that you're supposed to do. Uh, David is one who's saying, this weighs me down. I got to go about this my own way. I'm not going to do what other people do and what they expect. And it's a way of understanding the spirit of offense. Because we're living in a time of this. And it's rampant. And so that's all I got for you today. Well, let's pray. Mm. Lord, I have eyes to see a generation that is, is very easily offended. And Lord, if that's one of the signs of your coming, so be it. That many will be offended. And offense comes out of a misunderstanding of who they are before you. And it is our call to go out to share the gospel, but to show people what they've been saved into. That they don't have to compare themselves to to, to Bethel Music or to United Pursuit Band or to some great speaker or some great thing. They, they are solely in this journey, in a sense, with you. And they don't have to get their identity by what stream of Christianity they're a part of to get their identity. 
All that does is create denominations. All that does is create rifts. But Father, I pray that we here in Bristol, that we would adopt the understanding that we are first a single person, an I before you. Father, I pray right now that there would be a spirit released in this place that people would step into the understanding that they don't have to compare themselves with everyone else. That they are solely loved by you. That you save them because you love them. And so Father, we just pray that people would be encouraged with that. That they understand that they are an individual before you. That they have a special, beautiful place in the kingdom. That they are so fearfully and wonderful and special in your eyes. So it doesn't matter what anyone else says. And so we just break off that spirit of offense. We say you have no place here. That we get our identity through you, not through what we do and who we're a part of or what our background is or what our politics is or what our race is or what our ethnicity is. We get our identity before you. For the power of the gospel says there's no longer male nor female. There's no longer Jew nor Gentile. We are all one before you. But that can only happen. It can only happen. When we come before you as an individual, saying, I need to be saved from something, but into something. Amen? Amen. Hmm. Why don't we um, just stand if, if you feel led and have the worship team just seal, really seal this with a song of declaration of what it means to be loved by Him as an individual. And once, once they're like halfway through the song, if, if you have to get going, please feel free to be released. But I really just want to seal this and I would encourage you that if you feel that you walk in a spirit of offense, and you need to get set free from it, come on down. We're just going to pray for you to understand what it really means to be loved by Him. Because, because once we realize what it means to be loved by Him, that He shed His blood for I, all identity politics, all identity groupings, all of that just washes away. So please feel free to come down. We just want to bless you and pray for you. Have a wonderful week. I hope to see you next week.